When we read all four Gospels, each and every one begins the resurrection story with the emphasis that the resurrection took place and was found out by this group of people on the first day of the week. You have to see it in the text to see the impact of it. So why don't you turn to that reference verses that I've given you. Four verses. All four Gospels, see what they emphasize in the very beginning verses of that each account. Starting with our own, John, today's text, 21. Listen to that. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came only to the tomb. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn, toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Mark 16, 2. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb. Luke 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb. Now, the Jews observed the Sabbath day, which is Saturday, because that was the day that God rested from the work of creation, if you remember. Jesus died on the cross on a Friday afternoon, and he was in the tomb before the sundown. And as we have talked about, Jesus himself prophesied that he will be raised on the third day. So Friday he dies and goes into the tomb. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. In Jewish reckoning, a day does not have to be literal 24 hours. But any portion of a day will count a day. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days will be sufficient to fulfill the prophecies that Christ made. So the third day for Christ was Sunday, which was their first day of the week. And as you have read with your own eyes, each account of the gospel will emphasize that it was the first day of the week. Remember last week, I was talking about the website and one of the points that the website was making, I told you that I will come back to it to make a point. It said it in this way. His resurrection on the third day took place on the first day of the week, illustrating a new beginning and new life to all who trust in Him. If we could think about the significance of Jesus rising from the dead on the first day of the week. It could have been any other day. But God's wisdom made it in such a way that Christ would be raised on the third day, which is for them the first day of the week. What is the meaning or significance of that? Let us not, let us not jump over that. Listen to one commentary. Jesus' resurrection implicitly sanctifies the first day of the week 
as the new day of worship, replacing the seventh day Sabbath for the new covenant people of God. Early Christians refer to it as the Lord's Day, and that phrase appears actually in the Bible, as you know, Revelation 1, verse 10. The Apostle John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So Sunday, the Christian day of worship, we celebrate Christ's resurrection, and also we anticipate the final victory that God will bring about on the day that Christ will return again. Now, obviously, the Sabbath topic we cannot talk about today. But let us remember why we are gathering on Sundays. It is not because government gave us a day off. That all of you religious people go worship whatever gods in whatever temples that you want to worship. From the creation time, God's people have been worshiping God. Remembering God by resting from all works. God of creation. God the Redeemer. And now, because Christ was raised on the third day, Christians worship God on that day, remembering Christ's victory over death. That's why we gather on Sundays. Before we talked about this Easter season sermon, we were looking at the Exodus theme. I was coming to this text sometime, but let me just uh, make that statement at this point. Michael Morales, um, he wrote a book recently titled Exodus Old and New. And he describes Christ's resurrection in this way. Jesus' resurrection is the new exodus. Jesus' resurrection of the grave is the new exodus. His death and burial were the death and burial of the old creation in himself. His resurrection dawns the new creation in himself. He, body and soul, is the new man, the last Adam, new creation, humanity treading on the ground of the as-yet-old creation. What he's trying to say is, on the Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we think about Christ being raised from the dead. Wow, resurrection. He was dead, but God raised him. But if you step back and look at the entire Bible as a macro view of what's happening, Christ's death is not simply for him, not simply for us, but it resets the entire old creation and he is starting something new at the macro level. So Jesus' resurrection could be seen as new exodus and also as new creation. By his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus departed the old creation and entered into, or better, both became and ushered in a new creation. First point that I want to make today as we talk about the resurrection of Christ is this. Bible tells us, those of us who put our faith in Christ Jesus, Bible says this to us. If anyone in Christ 
a new creation. Remember that passage. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, new creation, he or she is a new creation or new creature, the old things passed away, behold, become new, have the old things. Old things have become new. Many times in Christianity, in our own religion, rightly, yes, rightly, we talk about changing, learning, growing. Because we realize that not everything comes in an instant. It's some of us, it takes time. But, resurrection of Christ teaches us, and those verses teach us, that if you are in Christ, there is such a discontinuity between the old self and the new self, what we must emphasize, realizing what Christ had gone through, and what we had gone through, is that there is new life, new beginning, and new creation in you. We could talk about growing, fixing myself, learning. All of those things are good and important. But his resurrection was not going through rehab. But it was from death to life by the power of God. So what I want you to keep in mind as Christians is that we need to affirm and begin with new life, new beginning, new creation, that God could make that happen in your life once and for all at the time when you put your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. It is not to deny progressive sanctification. But we do not, as Christians, start with sanctification. We start with justification. So we must start with the right beginning. That is, following categories. We must start with victory versus struggle. Definitive. We start with definitive versus progressive. We start with changed person versus changing person. We start with dead to sin, as we have read from Romans, versus dying to sin. We must begin with it is finished versus working out my own salvation in fear and trembling. We must begin with a new creation versus becoming new. You understand? Do not reverse the order. Reverse that order, you have a religion. Like Christ's resurrection, we begin with those definitive statements by faith as the Word of God teaches us. That's something that I wanted to emphasize to you today. Do we know something of that new beginning? Do you know something about that disconnect by the power of God in His Son through His Spirit who has raised you in the deepest part of your being? Do you know something about that new life is my question to you. God could do such things for all of us 
who put our faith and trust in Christ Jesus. Now in the gospel account, if you read, every gospel emphasizes that it was the women, group of women, who were there at the tomb early that morning. Why were they there in that early hours of that first day of the week? Why were they there anticipating Christ's resurrection? No, I don't think so. Luke gives us some background. Let me read that portion to you. It's not here, but let me read that portion to you. After the death, this is what these women did. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Luke 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. This group of women came early to the tomb because they wanted to give Christ, Jesus, proper burial. They brought spices and and they wanted to put them on the dead body of Christ and wrap him, not knowing that it was already done as John says it. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they brought the 100 pounds of spices or 75 pounds of it and they already gave Christ proper burial. But this group of women didn't know that. So they prepared, but Sabbath day, they couldn't do anything, so they waited. And very early in the morning, they were eager to come to the tomb to put that spice on Christ's body. That's why they came. But have you noticed something? In all these Gospels, you go back and read, Mary Magdalene was the leading figure who played a key role in the resurrection account of Jesus. You know how Peter, Apostle Peter, is always mentioned first among the disciples, giving him the prominence. You know that. If you go back and read, you will find Mary Magdalene almost always recorded first. She is the leader of the pack. She is the single most important person in the resurrection account. She is the link between the empty tomb and the disciples, at least in the first few hours of that same day. Put all these accounts together, Mary Magdalene was the first one at the grave. She was the first one to go back and report that news to the disciples that the body was missing. She was the first eyewitness of the risen Christ, as you see today in John's Gospel. She was the first person to see him. She was the first person to hear him. And she's the first one to speak to him and first person to touch him. Because he told her, stop clinging to me. Mary Magdalene was that 
first witness. Every gospel emphasizes that. And you, then you, guys, you, you have to see who she was. Mary Magdalene. Magdalene is not her last name. All these names are really not last name. But Magdala is a village name. Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea is a village name. They are from that place. Mary Magdalene is a Mary from Magdala city or village. And commentary says this. Magdala was a village on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee. What does that tell you? Fishing town. Small village. And there in Gospel of Luke, it gives us one line background about Mary Magdalene. Mary from Magdala. And Luke 8, 1 and following, listen to this. Jesus began going around from one city and village to another, another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And also, listen to this, some women had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Mary Magdalene is something like Tom, who's from Texas, Texan. Magdalene, she came from that city, small fishing town, But one line. What was her past? The description? From whom seven demons had gone out. Seven demons. I've never really thought about that. Seven demons. Think about that. Seven demons had gone out of this woman. Let's say you are an exorcist. You cast out a demon. Ugly demon comes out. One demon. You cast another out. Second demon. You cast another one out. Third demon. Fourth. Still more? Oh, fifth. Sixth. Oh, there's one more. Cast them out. Cast him out. Whatever out. Seventh. That, that is a lot. Not one demon, crazy, possessed woman... But seven demons had gone out of this woman. You don't need to look up some commentaries or uh, listen to some scholars to, to imagine her life. Imagine her life with me. A woman who had seven demons basically under complete control of demons. What would she do for her life? Can you handle as a family seven demon-possessed women in your household? She probably was put out by her own family. Why? You have demon-possessed women in your home, it makes your entire family what? Ceremonially unclean. You cannot worship in synagogues and temples and whatnot, and, and you'll be branded as that woman's family. 
What can she do? I don't know. Fortune telling like other places or prostitution. Whatever it is, people will be looking at her as dirty, weird, crazy, maniac, crazy, rough, tough, abused, street kind of life was her life. Magdalene. Small village. Everybody knows you. But Christ healed her. That healing meant for her freedom. Now she was free from the demon possession, the control of demons. Probably seven means complete number. But I don't know if it's literal seven demons or complete crazy woman. But the fact is she must have had toughest life that you could imagine in a poor fishing village. But Christ came town to town to town to town, teaching, preaching, healing. And Christ cast out demons out of her. She will never forget. And she will follow all the way to the crucifixion site, to the grave first one. Why? She owed entire life to Christ. Now, that kind of woman was the first witness of Christ's resurrection. All other people, rest of humanity, didn't have privilege to witness Christ, but she was the one. First one there, first one to see the risen Christ, touched him, heard him, spoke to him. Why? I was asking, why was she chosen? Why was she there? Just looking at the text. It was not because of her age, not because of her beauty, not because of her education, not because of her moral rectitude, or not because of her past, last name, background. She was really, she was not chosen because of that. But one thing was clear to me from the text, and, and I, I think that, that I could speak to you about this. Really, it is simply because she was lingering. She was staying behind. As you have seen from John's gospel, a couple others came. Peter came, John came. John outran Peter, but he was scared. He didn't go in. Peter comes, Peter goes in, and he follows him. He saw him believed. And later on, look at verse 11 today. Look at verse 10 and verse 11 from today's text. Verse 10, what do they do, these two men? So the disciples went away again to where? To their own homes. Verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb. What, what is she doing? Weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And I was thinking, that makes sense. Peter and John, they go home. They went home. Why? Because that's what men do. No further business. Body is not here, you go home. They don't linger, they don't, they don't drink coffee, they don't talk, they don't do anything. They just go home. That's men. But this lady was just staying behind, weeping, crying. Why? Because she loved the Lord and she's not anticipating resurrection. As you, Where's the body? Where's the body? Why are you weeping? Where's the body? She's crying. She's in petting mode. Because she loved him. That's all there is to it. She loved him and what was she doing? Unlike these two prominent men... Peter, the first disciple, first among equals, and 
John, whom Christ loved, they all went home. I think this is a very important point. And she just lingered, staying put, really not knowing what to do, but really, that lingering really made her to be the first witness of Christ's resurrection. And she's the one, every account, told by the angels to go tell the disciples. She becomes the messenger. Unqualified woman, now qualified, simply because she was just staying behind a bit longer. And while I was thinking about this, is this a legitimate point? But there is no other explanation other than the fact that she stayed behind. And while I was preparing this message, it's amazing how sometimes God brings up from my own life some of the memories that I have long time ago, and, and maybe this is relevant. And I'm going to make a point after this, that is this. I came to America when I was 17 years old to Bryan, Texas. And there was a gun shooting a couple of weeks ago. Bryan, Texas. It was a boarding school, which means everybody, no parents, just us, bunch of teenagers living under one roof. I remember first week, I was assigned a room. Because I was hyper-attentive for all these things, I remember every single detail even now. First week, what would you do? What, what, what is in your mind if you had a foreigner who first came to Bryan, Texas? That first week, we had two counselors in that dorm, college students who were supposed to watch over us, crazy people. And I remember approaching one of the counselors. He was an African-American man, big guy, huge, probably this tall, and I approached him. I did not know him. I forget his name. But I remember first week, with all that is happening, I approached him and I told him, I said this to him. I need to go to church. And he looked at me. And he probably thought, you're going to church? I mean, Jesus church? And he told me to come to his room. And all these kids who did not know, you know, nothing to do, so they came to and he said, you have to go to church. I said, I need to go to church. I didn't have a car. I was living in the dorm. First week in Bryan, Texas, wherever that is. I told my counselor, I need to go to church. So what he came up with was what? What would you do at the time? No Google, no internet. You bring out phone book. Big phone book. And, and he went to K. Because I was Korean. I still am Korean. <laughs> Looking for Korean church in Bryan, Texas. So what kind of church did you go to? He asked me. So I went to Presbyterian church, but I did not know what Presbyterian meant. So I looked it up in my dictionary and said, Presbyterian. And he looked it up. Lo and behold, there were two Korean churches in Bryan, Texas. One was Texas A&M church. The other one was Korean, Texas, Presbyterian, whatever. So he told me this. So, okay, what do you do? You call that number. So you put 25 cents into that phone, pay phone, and I call that number. And somebody picked it up. So I said, my name is this. I'm a high school student. I came from Korea this week. I need to go to church. 
And the person said, okay, Sunday morning, 11 o'clock, so 10.30, somebody's going to come and pick you up. So I said, okay, thank you. Hang on. So Sunday. Sunday, what do you do? You go to church. So I dressed up. I remember that Sunday. Still remember. I wore blue pants and pink shirt. And I had a Bible. I sat outside, outside of dorm, because I did not know. No phones, nothing, right? So you have to just trust that messenger. Somebody's going to pick you up at 10.30. So I remember I was sitting outside. Already like 10.30 in the morning, it was hot and humid. I was sitting outside if anybody would come and pick me up. 10.30, 11, nobody came. So I went home. I went back in. Turns out the person overslept. And he didn't come to pick me up. Following Sunday, a minivan came and picked me up and t- took me to a church. So I began my Christian life like that. The point of it all is that one of those days when I was the only high school student in that church, and that church was 20 minutes out, to farther out to some country field, and they brought this trailer home, and that was the church. And believe it or not, every Sunday, about 300 people would gather, all graduate students at Texas A&M University. And I was the only high school kid. Nobody else. Nobody's single. Few singles in grad school, but I'm the only high school kid. One of those days, Friday night, they said, come, there is a group coming, and they are going to, you know, have a praise song kind of a stuff. I, I, I did not know anything. I don't know the song. But, you know, all the brothers say, hey, you want to go that Friday night? What do you do in Bryan, Texas on Friday night? Nothing. So I said, okay, I'll go. And I remember going to that church. A group, Christian group came from Houston, Texas, big city. And that Friday night, they led a singing, you know, like praise and worship singing. And I remember sitting in the back, standing and doing the, all the motions. They did like, clapping games and whatnot, and I was singing songs and learning, whatever. But I remember after that, when that was over, I was a high school kid. I've never known anything really serious, Christianity, nothing like that, but I knew I had to go to church. And that day, after the thing was over, everybody left, and probably three or four of us, the people who were giving me the ride, were closing up the church and in the hallway, I still remember, I told one of those, what do you, what do, you do? When there was an inner desire in me. I did not know how to express it, why that was there. But I told one of those guys, is it possible for me to stay? I don't know, I don't know what to or how to say, but I feel like I have to pray. But the guy said, we got to go. So I left. What do you do? You don't have a car. You don't want to be stranded in 20 miles out in the desert, nowhere. So I went home. Three years later, I become a Christian by the providence of God. So I was in the leader's home in Houston. There was an album. I was looking at all these albums and pictures of for 10 years of uh, ministry. And I noticed a picture, a group, few pictures that were taken in my old church. So I took the album down to the downstairs and I talked to the leader. So and so, he was a missionary. 
were you in this Texas A&M church a few years back? And he said, yes, we were. We were there. We were leaving. And I remember I was there as a high school student. And he said, okay. And he moved on. <laughs> like nothing happened. What's funny was that my wife, she's sitting here. She was there leading the praise. She didn't know. I remember talking to her afterwards. Were you there? She didn't remember. She, they went around so many times. She didn't remember. But that was a funny thing. The reason why I am saying this is this, really. There are times, especially young people, or old people too, in Christian life, from time to time, God gives you such desires in your heart. You don't know how to put it, express it. Probably you'll be embarrassed to to talk about it, especially men. But when God gives you that desire, what you got to do is to obey that. And I remember looking at all these pictures, thinking, like I said, I did not know how to express that feeling. But I knew I wanted to pray that evening. God gave an opportunity. Looking back, if I stayed at that church for, I don't know, 30 more minutes, an hour or two late, I don't know how to pray. But if I stayed put, like Mary, Magdalene, you don't have to figure everything out. But if I had stayed behind, I have a feeling that I had probably would have become, at the time, a Christian or something like that. Give my life to Christ or something like that. I don't know. But I missed that opportunity because simply because I went home. Because everybody wanted to go home. When you go to college and you join these Christian groups, when there's a time for singing, sing. If people say, pray, then pray. Stick around. If they ask you to go to retreats, go to retreat and listen to the word and pray. Why so many conversions happen in the retreats? Because there's no time constraint. Today we go home. There's no rule against it. I was thinking, what kind of mighty work God could do if simply a person could stay behind? Just a little longer. Let yourself yourself go. While we were doing ministry in Texas... Whenever we invite a family to this kind of a group, let's say, praise and worship, whatever, we will always separate men from his families, especially dads. From our own experience, we know. Men do not want to show weakness. Sometimes the Spirit of God from the preaching of the Word convicts them, convict them and convince them of things. And you don't know how to express that. You don't know how to respond to that. But because of their pride, they pack it up and just go home. They just don't know how to deal with it, but they just go home. But again, you remember Exodus 33, 11. Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Because that's where the glory of God was. And Joshua would stay behind. Serve Moses, but stay behind. Today, it might be difficult for us to actually apply this. But in your life, if you are in such a situation, may God remind you of Mary Magdalene. Really, she didn't do anything in between. But by staying put, 
just lingering just a few more minutes, she was able to witness Christ and she was the first one who would tell the gospel story over and over again. Let that be true. The last one that I want to say very briefly is this. When you look at this resurrection account of Christ is that the resurrection of Christ from the very beginning was designed to be reported by an eyewitness. It was not really to be analyzed. It was not really to be looked into. And how was he raised? I am not discounting all of that. But ultimately speaking, it is to be hard and to be believed so that John 20, 31 says this. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Empty tomb in and of itself doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't prove anything. But carefully look at those texts. You will see It was the angels who would speak and give an eyewitness account first. They were the first reporters. They reported to Mary Magdalene and they would go and tell the disciples. Matthew says this. This this is the angel speaking. He is not here for he has risen. Mark, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who had been crucified He has risen. He is not here. Who's speaking? Not Mary. Not group of men. But the angels. Look. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. You see. Over and over again. And you will realize. Who gave the first report about Christ's birth? Angel. From the beginning of his life to all the way to the end of his life on earth, it was the, the angels or the angel who gave those news or report. And I was thinking, I remember another place where the angel was. After kicking them out, out of the Garden of Eden, this was what God did. So he drove the man out and the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed cherubim, the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Remember that? And cherubim is an angel, not Cupid, not tiny little baby with diaper shooting arrow. Cherubim is a terrifying figure. If you know, we don't have time for that. Ark of the Covenant has it. But when you go to Ezekiel, they have four faces, wheels turning, all kinds of stuff. But whatever it is, it is a fearful creature of God. And I was thinking, well, angel was guarding the door, entrance to the tree of life. And now what happens here? His tomb was in the garden. And it was not Mary Magdalene. It was the angel's announcement that gives credit to what happened to Christ. And there, the way and the truth and the life opened door back to the garden. And that door is fully open to those of you who believe this resurrection account. I hope and trust that you will know something of the new beginning in Christ's resurrection. 
If God gives you that sense inside of your heart, you don't know how to pray, just pray. Just pray. Wherever that is. Your attic, garage, open field, Bible reading, TV station, listening to sermons, whatever it is. God gives you that desire, obey. Do not delay. Do not go home. And believe the report so that you and I, we may have life in Jesus. Let's pray.